On the latest episode of On The Case, we are taking a look at the recent Court of Appeal decision in Ralph versus Ralph, an important case involving the requirements for rectification of the land register. I'm Jess Harold, and I'm joined today by Clifford Darton QC and George Woodhead, both of Selborne Chambers, who acted for the successful appellant. Great to speak to you both. Hi, Jess. Thank you. So to begin with, we should really set the background to the case. So could you talk us through the facts of Ralph versus Ralph that led to this litigation and the central issues raised by the dispute? This was a part eight claim uh, which concerned the beneficial ownership of a residential property in Sutton. And the parties uh, were and, and continue to be father and son. Uh, the property was purchased in uh, the party's joint names in October 2000 uh, for £84,500. And the TR1 that was completed by the solicitor who acted for both of the parties on the conveyance um, recorded in box 11 uh, that uh, the transferee, so that's father and son, uh, are to hold the property on trust for themselves as tenants in common uh, in equal shares. And unusually, whilst all of the other crosses on the TR1 form had been computer generated, this cross had been inserted um, by hand. Um, it, there was a finding of fact, uh, I should say, Jess, that the parties had met with the solicitor and neither of the parties had any criticisms of the job that the solicitor had done. Um, but he had long since gone, as had the convincing file. Uh, and what the trial judge found, uh, Jess, this is back in December 2019, um, was that the parties had taken a mortgage of 76 or just over £76,000 uh, and that Father David had paid the balance to top it up to the £84,500 that was paid. And then actually, neither at the beginning of the purchase of the property, the initial purchase, nor subsequently had, um, had our client, uh, Dean, uh, contributed any funds uh, whatsoever towards um, the purchase of the property, although uh, the father's evidence on this at trial was uh, a little less clear cut. Anyway, these proceedings were issued in uh, September 2018, as I say, a year or so um, ago before the, the actual trial. Uh, and the matter came before trial, and, uh, and as long as Judge Monty QC had some um, quite uh, uh, profound misgivings about the way in which father's counterclaim or the absence of any counterclaim as it, as it was, had been brought. There was no uh, pleaded claim for rectification and the ingredients for mistake hadn't been spelled out. Um, but the findings of the trial judge were that although there was no pleaded counterclaim by the courts, um, the case would not have been run in any different way. Um, the, uh, the evidence um, uh, of father had been that he'd intended the property to be held on trust for his family and i should say just there this was a family i think of um seven uh, and and the, the family obviously included my client d uh, and that father's intentions were confused the trial judge found as to what how this property should have been um held uh, at one point he'd said that he had not intended his son dean to be any kind of co-owner um, but he reneged on that assertion under cross-examination and the trial judge went on to find that there were no discussions between the parties or with their solicitor as to joint beneficial ownership um, or the uh, the ticking or completing of the infamous box 11. And so essentially, Jess, whilst the parties hadn't uh, intended to be uh, tenants in common and equal shares, uh, there was no finding as to what they had 
uh, intended uh, to the contrary. And that became a, a relevant issue in both the first appeal um, and, of course, as you'll hear from Clifford, um, no doubt, in, in a moment's time, the second appeal later on. So there are a number of grounds that came uh, grounds of appeal that um, came before Mr Justice Morris. And I should say, of course, the, the claim for a declaration by the son as to his ownership and then an order for sale um, was dismissed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was the counterclaim or well, we, we say there was no counterclaim, but ultimately the, the trial judge found um, that the uh, the cross should essentially be um, removed and that the best analysis was to apply a common intention constructive trust approach to this case. Uh, and that decision was upheld by Mr Justice Morris on appeal, um, who, who, who made um, uh, a number of um, uh, conclusions on, on the appeal, one of which being that actually a pleaded ca- claim for rectification isn't required in these cases, whilst ordinarily ought to be done, it's not essential. Um, But essentially that when one looks at a case like this, where the parties have no um, concluded position as to what should be said in box 11, the best thing was to do was to remove the cross in box 11 and and then undertake an analysis along the lines of, of Stack and Dowden. And of course, we then appealed to the Court of Appeal on the basis that that decision was wrong and indeed the correct approach was to decide on the basis of the uh, the court of appeal decision in FSHC what the continuing common intention of the parties was up to the uh, date of um, the the TR1 uh, and whether that continuing common intention was outwardly expressed to each other Uh, and it was on that point that um, we were ultimately successful in the court of appeal. So that really is a very potted history. No doubt I've, I've missed some of the, uh, the facts, but I think I've covered the salient facts, Jess, of what this case was really all about. Thank you very much for that, George. And as you say, uh, uh, you have been successful now on the second appeal uh, at the Court of Appeal. So looking in a little bit more depth um, at the Court of Appeal's decision, how did they approach that uh, question of rectification and, and, and what was their reasoning? Okay, well, um, perhaps I should take that one, Jess. Um, I think to understand what the Court of Appeal decided, you have to draw a distinction between two situations, which is where two parties to a contract did not intend a particular term because they never discussed it, and where they actually did intend a particular term because they'd either discussed it or it went without saying. Yeah. And essentially what the Court of Appeal said was, well, look, in this situation, it's quite obvious that father and son did not arrive at any express agreement for the TR1 to declare them joint beneficial owners. They never discussed it. However, in order to rectify the TR1, so as to remove that express statement of beneficial joint ownership, um, it was necessary for the court to find that both of them had intended the document to be silent on the issue. So what the Court of Appeal said, in essence, was, well, they never discussed it. They may not have intended what is set out in the TR1, but nor did they intend what the courts below have altered, rectified the TR1 to show. So in other words, if you get in a a TR1 or indeed in any contract, a situation where there's a term included, but neither party gave it any particular consideration, then that's not a reason to remove it. Mm 
Because in order to remove a term from a contract or change a term in a contract, the court has to decide that the parties actually were in agreement on the change that the court is going to make. So there has to be communication with them so that, that the court can say subjectively what we are changing the contract to is what both parties subjectively intended before the contract was executed. So put simply, not thinking about it, silence is not enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing is, Jess, is that in these types of cases where you get TR1s, certainly between you know cohabiting parties, domestic conveyancing, the truth of the matter is, and this isn't this isn't me just saying it, Jess, this is what um Lady Hale said in Stack and Dowden, is that um quite often they don't discuss things, mm. or even when they do discuss things and have it explained to them, they don't understand it anyway. Yeah, because it's obviously a very complicated thing for the average person to get to wrap their head. So, so what the Court of Appeal was saying is, well, look, the courts can't come along and say, well, we see there's that the, the TR1 declares the, the party's beneficial interests. But do you know what? Having heard their evidence, they never understood that. They never intended that. So we, the court, are now going to give them what we think they would have intended. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what the Court of Appeal is saying is, no, 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 you can't rectify on that, that basis. If, if the written document says something that neither of them in fact intended, but, they, but, but by the same token, the parties didn't have any intention on it, then it just stays. Because it, it's, the, the written document can only be changed in exceptional circumstances. And the exceptionality is where you can show that the change was what they intended. Um, and, and the Court of Appeal, uh, I, they looked at other cases. I mean, there's a case called Pankhani and, and Chandegra of 2012, for instance, the Court of Appeal case, where you had almost an identical situation, which was years after the conveyance. One of the parties says, oh, well, we never agreed, we never intended what's in the TR1. And, and the Court of Appeal is essentially saying, well, look, um, the fact that you come along and say that is not going to be enough, even if, the, even if the trial judge is satisfied that neither of you had any intention on it. What you've got to show is that what we're going, you are asking the court to change the TR1 to state reflects what both of you actually intended. And that's a much harder test to, to, to satisfy. So in reality, in most situations, um, parties are going to be stuck with the declaration of their TR1s. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is, you know, a huge relief for, well, certainly lenders, for instance, because if you're lending against a property, you look at the TR1 to tell you how it's owned. Mm. It's also, frankly, going to be a huge relief to most judges because, um, again, and this isn't just me, this is Lady Hale, um, the problem with these kind of cases, especially when you get cohabitants, is that, you know, if you're talking 20 years later, their actual memory of what happened isn't great. And the temptation to reinterpret against how they now feel about the property and, or their former partner means that you're going to have, you know, a succession of cases where people just challenge the TRRs. Mm -hmm. So it's that classic situation, Jess, of sort of, if you like, perhaps on one level, certainty over fairness. 
Mm. You know, you, you, the written document just makes life easier. Um, so the Court of Appeal, what they said was, yeah, it's really hard to rectify a TR1, not enough to show that you didn't really understand it, didn't really discuss it. You've got to show that both parties, both claimant and defendant, intended the document to have the meaning and effect that you seek to get it changed to. And that's a hard standard. And I, I think, Jess, if I might just add on to what Clifford said, whilst um, it seems quite a lot to be made of Mr. Mo Justice Morris's decision that you don't have to formally lead a case in rectification, ordinarily, just to pick up on what Clifford has said, you wouldn't just say this document is wrong. It doesn't reflect the party's intentions. But this is what's correct. This is what the parties had a had continuing common intention um, on the particular point up to the up to the time that the contract was completed. And in your claim, you'd say this is what we say the contract should actually say instead. And that was the problem in this case is that whilst there was a finding that as to the, as to the TR1 being wrong, there was no conclusion as to what both parties uh, uh, commonly thought because they just hadn't applied their minds to it. And that's what really s sets this case aside from most commercial mm -hmm. contract cases, because you can see in those cases, traveling drafts of documents, and normally the mistake is spotted immediately after the conclusion of the contract. Whereas here, the mistake uh, wasn't spotted for um, for well over 10 years, well, well over 12 years, importantly, mm -hmm. because the convincing file was no longer around. So just to summarize, I would say that in short, you know, that in the interests of legal certainty, there should be a high bar for for rectification of the land register. And, and the, the Court of Appeal in this case has, has seemingly restored that high bar after after some uncertainty from, from the courts below. I imagine um, that the lower decisions may have caused uh, some concern uh, in the industry about, about um, possible rectification claims. And, and this is perhaps reassuring for people in your position. Uh, I, I, well, I think that flatters us too much, Jess, as significance. <laughs> I, I think the reality of it was is that the, the first appeal was only reported in relation to the pleading point. Mm. Um, and I mean, what was significant, certainly from the way when George and I were preparing for the appeal, was the fact that the master of the roles heard the case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is not a case mm. financially that was about a great deal. So it, when you're, you know, a counsel acting in an appeal, it, it's always, you know, of note who your tribunal is. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the, the I use the word inappropriately or not, but the fact that the master of the roles called the case in and said, I'm going to hear this, mm. sort of reflects the fact that as a result of the second appeal, the court of, of appeal were, you know, cognizant of the, of the significance of it. So before then, it, that, that had not been the case. Um, but uh, the, the reality within anyone who does co-ownership of, of property cases, disputes, um, is that essentially the parties have fallen out in a major way. It's not just over the property. It's probably over their relationship. Mm. Um, and so um, they want to have an argument. And they certainly don't want to give, you know, their other half a penny more than they have to. Mm. So what you have underpinning very much, you know, the, the certainty, as you put it, Jess, behind TO1s, is the desire to stop cohabitants spending fortunes on legal costs um, when it, it's not going to make any difference. Mm. 
And, and so here, for instance, um, by making it a hard test to satisfy, you will discourage a lot of, you know, unhappy, disgruntled partners from taking disputes because their lawyers will be able to say to them, look, there's no point in doing that. You're not going to succeed. All you can do is waste costs. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, yes, it, it's certainly in that sense uh, a, a, a very helpful decision. And as I said, it's also helpful for lenders mm. because, of course, if you're lending, you would, you could uh, um, get hold of the TR1. It contains a declaration of joint beneficial ownership. You would assume, therefore, that both owners, both legal owners, are also both beneficial owners. So you'd be a little bit dis disappointed if you've sought to enforce, particularly against one of them, because there were reasons why you couldn't enforce against the other, to discover that, in fact, it was being said that, that one of them wasn't an owner at all, and the whole property was owned by one of the legal owners. So right. it helps on that certainty front. Um, what, it, what it leaves unanswered is that, um, and, and it does create a, a, a number of potential arguments, well, more than potential arguments, almost certain arguments to be taken, is, is, is two aspects, Jeff. One is that in this case, although the TR1, the Section 11, had been ticked, as George put it, and ticked by hand or mm. crossed, so as to declare beneficial ownership, it had not been signed by the parties as purchasers. It had only been signed by the by the sellers. Mm -hmm. Now the master of the roles is very quick to point out, say, well, that shouldn't have happened. Um, and the other side in the case had not taken this point. And if you see the judgment, so he didn't feel that it was appropriate, the court didn't feel it was appropriate to explore that issue. Um, but for those of us who do cohabitation cases, it's not unusual for the TR1 in practice not to have been signed by the purchasers. And everybody had understood for years that that didn't matter. Mm. So the declaration was still binding on the basis that the sellers were declaring a trust as the then owners of the property at the date of the transfer for the benefit of the transferees, the purchasers, that they were then stuck with. Yeah? Yep. And most recently, there was a case called Taylor and Taylor, 2017, a decision of his honour, Judge Matthews, where he reaffirmed that principle and said, doesn't matter whether it's signed or not, you're still stuck with it in the same way. Mm. Now, what the master of the roles has said in his judgment, with which the rest of the court have agreed, is, do you know, I'm not sure that's right. <laughs> now, that is the green light to anybody who has a very disgruntled client where it's not been signed. Mm. And in practice, um, it can be, you know, utterly fortuitous whether the document is signed or not. Because George, George was sort of subtly alluding to without basically saying it is that although the, the trial judge did not find that the parties had approved it, to any conveyancer, the idea that you would complete that form without having run it past your clients would mm. be quite extraordinary. And because there was no conveyancing file, you didn't have the attendance notes saying sat down with father and son, went through this, and yes, they're all happy. So somebody out there is going to read 
the Court of Appeals judgment in Ralph and Ralph and say, oh, well, we we can pump this up now because although his honour Judge Matthews has said, you know, this is the decision, the master of the role says he's not convinced. And that means that on the first instance trial, you might persuade the judge, but what's almost certain is you're going to get permission to appeal. Mm. So that point almost certainly someone is is going to, to, to pursue it. And I think the question becomes, it, it will, a lot will depend on the quality of the facts of the appellant that gets there first. Because the more meritorious those facts are, in other words, the greater the injustice of being stuck with the TR1, that may well have a bearing on the outcome of the Court of Appeals decision. And that would, that would have huge impacts because it would mean that, that in the context of litigation, you'd always be searching through to see whether the parties had signed it. Mm. And if they hadn't signed it, well, then it would have no standing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's one of the significant parts of this case. The second is, is that um, the Court of Appeal decided, as I, as I hope I've explained, that in order to rectify a tier one, the trial judge has to find as a fact that both parties actually intended the TR1 to bear the terms and consequences that the judge is being asked to change the contract to. Yeah? Yeah. But in commercial contracts, there is an additional hurdle under a case called FSHC, which says that not only do the parties have to subjectively intended the term for which rectification is sought, but they have to have communicated their intentions. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. Now, what the... And, that, and in, that, in this case, so we were at both points. Our main point that the Court of Appeal recognised was that these parties never subjectively intended anything. They never understood mm. anything. Yeah. You, yeah. You, it, it, you know, all the judges found is that they were ignorant of the fact that the TR1 had been executed in the way that it had. He hadn't made a finding that meant any more than that. Um, But the additional requirement of communication would make it even harder to rectify a TR1. Mm -hmm. Because it wouldn't just be enough for a trial judge to say, look, these two parties did subjectively intend this. The trial judge would also have to find that they communicated it. Now, there's all sorts of arguments as to the nature of that communication. And, and, and so you know, people talk about things left unsaid, but by what was said, you can see that it was intended. But the point about it is, is you, as a judge, you're either going to have to point in the context of TO1 to a conversation, or there's going to have to be some form of correspondence from which you can mm. deduce the judge can say that. Now, um, the Court of Appeal in Brown have left that issue undecided. And they have said that they don't know whether that additional requirement will be appropriate or will not be appropriate, because in context of trusts, pure trust settlements, you know, family settlements, mm. etc., the the cases, um, and I think it's Reed Butler, it's a very old case, makes clear that you don't have to have a communication. Now, what uh, um, the master of the roles has said is, he said, look. I think it depends on whether you view the TR1 as a commercial transaction for which the parties have bargained. 
If you do view it in that way, then the additional requirement of a communication of mutual intentions, the FSH rule that applies in commercial contracts, will also apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you don't view it in that way, if you just view it as, as it were, a, a, a transactional device, then it may be that you don't need to show communication. So all you need to do is find the subjective intention. Yeah, and that will be a lower bar. It's still much higher than where the bar was set following the the first appeal in in Ralph and Ralph. But whether it goes higher or not is now up for debate. Um, And and the problem with that is, as I'm sure you've seen, Jess, is that um, because we had this, I mean, this is this dog's co-ownership of property cases, um, is that um, it's very difficult to distinguish between the commercial and the non-commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because TL1s are used for all property transactions. And even if you have transactions between um, family members, yeah, that doesn't mean it's not a commercial transaction. Mm. And, and the seminal case on this was a case that I'm sure you know called Lasker and Lasker, um, where they were dealing with a buy-to-let property between a, a, a mother and daughter. Now, is that commercial or <laughs> is that domestic? You know, and so um, that issue again is likely to be tested, and the outcome may well depend on the quality of the facts. So if you get a, 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 a you know a, a grave injustice where the court of appeal feels stirred to act because the TR1 mm. has resulted in, in a decision which is manifestly unfair, then it could well be that they will say that those additional requirements, in other words, the communication of the subjective intention is not needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it may also be, to go back to my first point of the significance, they may say, well, do you know what? The TL1 has not been signed by the purchasers. Yeah. is of no standing at all. And if that happens, it will be open season down in the county courts. <laughs> you know, and, and not just that, but also trustees in bankruptcy will then be met. You know, they seek to enforce against the husband's share of the property because here's a TR1 that declares it. And then, of course, the husband is likely to be very cooperative with the wife's assertion that no, 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 neither of them ever intended the TR1. <laughs> I, I and should of course, say, that then weakens your security. Sorry, George. Well, I'll, I'll just say to, to, to mitigate against the open season in the county courts, <laughs> which Clifford mentioned, which, with which I agree, not only did the trial judge disallow father's cost despite his victory um, on the basis that he refused mediation jess mm, yeah. um, the court of appeal made it very clear towards the end um, of the judgment um, of the master of the roles um, that mediation in this case um, ought to have taken mm-hmm. place um, and, and what's more that the court can now um, compel parties to attend mediation um, which for many of us seems uh, like quite a uh, well, let's put it this way, a very modern development in the mm. uh, procedural approach by the court to compel parties to mediate. Um, but those parties who refuse mediation in these sorts of cases, particularly, as Clifford said, because emotions can run very high. And to most people, it's the biggest transaction they will ever make buying a property, um, mm. someone who's close to them. Um, and for those reasons, mediation is something which should take place. And I think the, the lesson to be learned is that anyone who refuses mediation 
um, may find themselves struggling to argue they should have their costs paid by the mm-hmm. other side, even if they do win yeah. um, in, in, uh, in the first instance decision. So it's um, whilst it might lead to further litigation, the need to mediate has been stressed by all of the judges that have dealt with this case. But uh, um, as Clifford pointed out earlier on, I'm sure with, with some of these family disputes, it, it, it can be very difficult to uh, persuade clients around to that way of thinking, I, I imagine. And, yeah, I um, mean, there is another point just to pick up on that, Jeff, which is, uh, sorry to stop me if we're um, running out, but um, what um, the Master of Wells also said, which would come, I think, as a truly you know, a frightening uh, uh, suggestion to some conveyances is that um, if there is a disagreement between ca- uh, purchasing, ca- you know, cohabitants, mm-hmm. boyfriend and girlfriend as to shares, then they ought to be separately advised. Because, you know, you're you're into the realms of, you know, cheap and cheerful conveyancing. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know the kind of level of and the amount of money. So um, it, it's the the suggestion that, that the Master of Olds had that, you know, this should be somehow the product of a reflective process is, you know, whilst legally right and utterly commendable, um, may not reflect any, you know, the, the commercial realities of how mm. domestic conveyancing is undertaken. <laughs> and, you know, the, the situations in, in, in effect, you know, where one party um, was putting in most of the deposit and then went on to pay all of the mortgage, and 20 years later they're being told that the partner who they may have separated from, you know, two years into the purchase of the property is entitled to half, mm. that, that's going to go, you know, very, very badly. Um, and they are g- going to want to get out of the declaration in the, in, in the TR1. So, yes, George is right, but the problem with mediation is, is that, you know, you can order them to go to mediation, but you can't necessarily get them to settle. Um, <laughs> Or, on a different level, uh, maybe it isn't right that they should have to settle, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, settling because the law is uncertain might be said to be a reflection on, on, on you know, the law rather than on the parties. But, yeah. yeah. Well, we uh, look forward to, to seeing uh, if and when cases come to court that raise those those two uh, unanswered questions that, that you mentioned to us, Clifford, and hopefully uh, you can each keep an eye out and perhaps let us know. And, and maybe uh, at some point in the future, we'll be we'll, we'll be doing this again, uh, answering those unanswered questions. Uh, thank you both for joining me to explain Ralph uh, versus Ralph. Um, it's been great speaking to you. You have been listening to On The Case from EG.